Ladies and gentlemen, happy Aloha Friday. That's what we would say if I was back at my home in Hawaii. But you know what? If I'm not, well, that's all right. I'm going to do it anyway. So <laughs> happy Aloha Friday. It's the 29th of July, year 2022. And you have tuned in to Greenwich, A Town for All Seasons with Jeffrey Bingham Mead, your host. Let's get started. Welcome to the 29th of July, 2022 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. Yes, hosted by me, Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the gateway to New England. And now, as always, I am so glad that you could join us for today's show. Founded on July 18, 1640, Greenwich, Connecticut is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. This weekly podcast show is dedicated to exploring one of America's most notable and dynamic communities. It's a place that we call home, and we're glad to do so. <laughs> whether, you're, whether your roots go back nearly 400 years, as mine do, or even 400 seconds or somewhere in between, well, by golly, guess what? You are welcomed here <laughs> with open arms. You're a part of our history, so congratulations. And there's a lot of history out there to explore, so you've come to the right place. Now, the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates. Also, the Long Island Sound Institute, which is a project of Site Design Associates. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Mr. Kevin M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Coming up on today's show. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's the final Friday of July, and we'll step back in time to the period between 1880 to 1930 to tour one of Greenwich's great estates. Now, thanks to the Junior League of Greenwich, we'll learn about a chapter in our history when the town grew from a simple farming community to one more worldly with strong commercial ties to New York City replete with exquisite mansions, beautiful landscape grounds, luxurious details, and more. On today's show, we'll travel back in time to Hilo House and a great estate called Kackham Wood. I'm going to take a wild guess and assume that if you've driven on Greenwich Avenue anytime recently, you'll find that getting a parking space for yourself and your car was a tad bit challenging now, am I right? Well, yeah, of course I am. Now, parking... Parking woes are nothing new in Greenwich's history, I'm sorry to say that, and you'll learn just how far back those parking woes go. <laughs> All right. Um, oh, a good friend of mine, Dennis Richmond, made headlines in the New York Post recently with revelations about his African-American roots here in Greenwich, Connecticut, and I'm going to share some details with you about that. Last week, we learned about a few inventors who called Greenwich, Connecticut home. Today, we'll follow up with the inventor of a machine he called, get this now, 
horseless carriage, unquote. His name, Simon Ingersoll. Yes. On crimes and misdemeanors, not all was tranquil, serene, and law-abiding uh, among the town of Greenwich's people. As we continued to observe the 125th anniversary of the founding of the Greenwich Police Department. It's, on, or it's one of Greenwich's most historically significant cemeteries. Judge Frederick Hubbard wrote about the new Burial Grounds Association Cemetery located next to the Second Congregational Church, and I'll share his words with you from the 1920s about that place. It's very interesting. Well, I'll tell you, uh, we've barely scratched the surface of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut's 382 years of history. I'll have news, events, and gatherings open to everyone at the Greenwich Historical Society and elsewhere, and so much more. So please, stay where you are. Don't go away. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Support is made possible by... Site Design Associates is an award-winning landscape architecture studio located in historic Greenwich, Connecticut and founded in 1979 by its principal, Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect. Committed to a unique multidisciplinary approach to professional landscape design and development, Site Design Associates' ambition is to foster a sense of excellence that is second to none from analysis to construction and maintenance with 35 years of experience, coupled with a sense of place, purpose, and history. Now, Peter F. Alexander is a member of the American Society of Landscape Architects. He's a graduate of the Rhode Island School of Design and a member of the American Planning Association. My friends, Peter F. Alexander and Site Design Associates is the title sponsor of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast, and we are very grateful for the support that we receive. You can learn more at sitedesignassociates.com. You can call Peter F. Alexander at 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. Or you can email him at peterA at sitedesignassociates.com. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. A special project of Site Design Associates and its principal landscape architect, Peter F. Alexander, the Greenwich, Connecticut-based Long Island Sound Institute consists of a community of professionals, researchers, academics, and concerned individuals progressively congruently working towards safeguarding Long Island Sound through research, historical perspective, and restoring ecological balance through management, policy, and education. The Long Island Sound Institute's aspiration is to promote modern planning and the implementation of the most up-to-date technologies available to conserve Long Island Sound for future generations. Long Island Sound Institute's studio is at 2 Greenwich Office Park West, 
to contact the Institute, email LISIHI2023 at gmail.com. That's LISIHI2023 at gmail.com. Or call area code 203 869 8632. Again, that's 203 869 8632. There are many ways to serve our country. A select number of individuals are nominated to serve as U.S. ambassadors in countries around the world. Their diplomatic assignments are vital to the U.S. maintaining peaceful and working relationships with global governments. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is based in Greenwich, Connecticut. AMUSA is in the process of organizing and implementing a virtual ambassador museum. This facility will be a tribute not just to the ambassadors, but also their families, experiences, and the millions of lives that have been affected by them. Its goal is to correct a stereotypical idea that large donors are the people who are selected as ambassadors of the United States and the notion that some in the State Department make a career out of being an ambassador. To learn more about the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, go online to amusa.info. That's uh, that's amusa.info. Call 203-347-4604. Or you can also write to P.O. Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. Well, I have to tell you, my friends, one of today's blessings, even though it is rather hot outside, is that I have found within a stone's throw of Coffee for Good at the Solomon Mead House at 48 Maple Avenue here in Greenwich, I have found a shady spot where, quite frankly, I I could sit here all day. (laughs) But, of course, we have things to do. One of the things we have to do on this podcast is to step back in time to the period between 1880 and 1930. Feeling warm now? Well, there's more. Now, this was a period where we saw the evolution of Greenwich from a simple farming community to a place a little bit more worldly and stronger ties to um, uh, to business in, um, in New York City. A place and a time where wealthy people were attracted to Greenwich and they brought a new level of sophistication um, uh, and it was reflected in their country estates. Know where I'm going on this? Yes, we're at that time where we're going to talk about one of the great estates in Greenwich. Who do we have to thank for this? Well, chartered in 1959, the Junior League of Greenwich, Connecticut has played an impressive role in fostering valuable projects and services for the town and for the townspeople as no one else has done before or since. One of those projects was the research and the publication of The Great Estates, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930 book. It's an extraordinary book. You can find it in the uh, Greenwich Library system. You can, uh, you can take it out and, uh, and read it uh, at your leisure for free. Now, my good friend, the late town historian William E. Finch Jr., referred to this period of our history as the flowering of Greenwich, an age when the word Greenwich became synonymous with the word millionaire. Well, there you go. The The Greatest States Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930 book is, as I said, available for borrowing from the Greenwich Library System. I urge you to um, to do so. You can also learn more about the Junior League of Greenwich at jlgreenwich.org. 
The, the organization is located at 231 East Putnam Avenue in the heart of the Putnam Hill National Historic District. Perfect place for it, in my view. If you want to learn more and you want to call them, please contact them at 203-869-1979. I've got a very interesting uh, estate that I'm going to profile for you today from the, uh, from the book. Um, and this one is one known to us. Uh, here in Greenwich, those of us that grew up here, of course, and that one is Keckham Wood. Um, you can see that it is a, a street name or road name um, located off of uh, Round Hill Road, just north of the intersection with, um, with Pexland Road. Um, I, I'll tell you that when I was growing up here, it was a bit of a mysterious place. I have not been in there, um, and uh, you you have to be a resident in order to go in there. So please don't think that you can just drive through and gawk at the houses and uh, what have you. Um, if you make friends with somebody that lives in the uh, Cackamwood um, neighborhood, well, please, um, then you know go at um, at when they invite you. Uh, but um, uh, but anyway, <laughs> um, the principal owner of Cackamwood when it was first developed was I.M. Phelps Stokes. He was also the uh, the architect, and the construction date uh, was 1908 to 1910. So I want you to sit back wherever you are, whether you're in a shady spot like I am on the um, uh, on the campus of the Second Congregational Church uh, with a wonderful cup of coffee from uh, my good friends over at Coffee for Good or at home or at the beach or elsewhere. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Hilo House, the oldest occupied house in the United States in 1912, was to be found in Greenwich on the estate of Mr. and Mrs. Isaac Newton Phelps Stokes. Phelps Stokes, who lived from 1867 to 1944, uh, as he was familiarly called, was a noted architect. He was a designer of Woodbridge Hall at University, St. Paul's Chapel at Columbia University, the Music School at Harvard, he was a housing expert appointed by President Theodore Roosevelt to the State Tenement House Commission. He was an historian, author of, a six, of the six-volume iconography of Manhattan Island book. Um, in 1900, he bought almost 177 acres of land, which had been from the W.A. Houston farm, from William Smith, and from that date unfolded a most interesting story. Phelps Stokes and his wife uh, selected the highest part of their property for a building site and decided on the placement of the house they would build. The more important rooms would face a little west of south so as to get the full benefit of the prevailing summer breeze. The dining room would be situated to make it possible during the greater part of the year to enjoy the setting sun through the high windows of the Great Hall at dinner time. Phelps Stokes completed the general plan of the house and its surroundings in 1905, and work was immediately begun on the north wing, including the service quarters and the pleasuance, I hope I pronounced it properly, literally a pleasure ground, quote-unquote, a level sunken area of closely clipped turf which met the low-walled gardens adjoining the house. His intention was to complete the development in three parts over a period of perhaps ten years, and to occupy the house as soon as the first section was finished. Meanwhile, when they were in Greenwich, Mr. and Mrs. Stokes and their baby daughter Helen lived in a building already on the property which they called the Old House. The first section of the gray stone Tudor-style house was finished in 1908, built by only a few carefully picked workmen. 
the, sections, the second section, including the octagonal tower, in 1910. This tower had a stone post in its center supporting a circular stairway made with triangular pieces of stone cut to form the steps. Neatly fitting together like pieces of a pie, they spiraled upward to a room at the top, which had a magnificent view over lawns, gardens, and the surrounding countryside. The family had just settled comfortably into their enlarged quarters, with the full expectation of waiting another five years before beginning work on the last section when, in the summer of 1910, an advertisement in English Country Life magazine caught Phelps Stokes' eye. All the materials of a little half-timbered Tudor mansion house called Hilo House and built in 1597 were offered for sale. Standing near Ipswich in Suffolk, England, the house had been condemned so that some municipal, municipal improvements could be carried out. In Stokes' own words, quote, I was struck at once with the charm of the old woodwork and with the possibility of using this material in the completion of my own house, unquote. Subsequently, he arranged with an English firm to take the house down, put everything in proper repair, pack, ship, and re-erect the house in Greenwich in accordance with his own working drawings. Some 688 cases and bundles arrived at a pier in New York and were then transshipped to a Greenwich wharf engaged for the unloading. They were hauled to Roundhill Road and piled on the Stokes' lawn. The English foreman who had demolished the house found in the New York vicinity a half a dozen masons and carpenters, also English, who were experienced in work of such unusual character. A total working force, which varied between 12 and 18 men, began reconstruction of the old house in the spring and finished before cold weather set in. They followed the age-old painstaking building methods of 16th century England wherever practicable. And where additional materials were required, they were found in other old houses in the neighborhood of Ipswich, or, in the case of some flooring and timbers, in the wreck of an old English ship on the New Jersey coast. The only new materials used were mortar, terracotta furrings on the outer walls, replacing the original oak lath, tiles, under the flooring, and window frames in glass. While the old frames were in good condition, they would not have withstood the horizontal rain and sleet of Connecticut winters, so they were discarded. The resulting building, finished in 1912, was a beautiful and a harmonious union of its two parts. The old manor house stood as it had in England, each timber, tile, and chimney brick in its original place, preserving all the mellowness and irregularities that come only with age. The weathered red-tiled roof and the soft tones of the aged wood and brickwork contrasted, yet blended with the gray stone of the main body of the house, to which it had been skillfully connected as a wing. The house, when completed, including a drawing room, a dining room, a reception room, a library, a billiard room, a writing room, a loggia, a kitchen and other service quarters, nine master bedrooms, seven servants' rooms, and eight bathrooms and lavatories. The Stokeses liked to spend time searching for antiques and to furnish the house. They bought fine old furniture, English for the most part. One exception in the dining room was a long antique walnut refractory table, which was Spanish in origin.
Outside the house, the exceptional gardens and plantings were laid out for Frederick Law Olmsted Jr., well-known landscape architect, city planner, and son of the designer of New York City's Central Park. He trained with his father and maintained with his stepbrother their father's firm after the senior Olmsted's death. The land immediately surrounding the house was developed into a landscape as typically English as was the residence. Low-walled gardens clustered around about the, the old wing, and the pleasuance, quite unusual in the United States, was, as proposed by Stokes, quote, so closely related to the house as to form almost an outdoor part of it, unquote. This finely clipped, this finely clipped carpet, stretching toward the, a screen of trees to the north, was surrounded by a high stone wall, for the greater part screened by masses of foliage and flowering shrubs, and bordered by clipped yew and boxwood. Across its far end was a pleached alley of clipped English linden, under the edge of which was a rectangular swimming pool with broad steps descending into it, and beyond the pool was the tennis lawn. The Stokes' named their estate Cackham Wood after a spring on the property used by the Indians, and they called the house itself the Hilo House, since it was the original name of the old wing. They arrived from their New York residence each summer and stayed for the season, but used the house only on weekends. In the spring and fall, closing off the old wing when cool weather made the coziness of the stone portion of the house desirable. Mrs. Stokes, the former Edith Mintern, was responsible for the running of the estate. Her husband was busy with his architectural firm and his writing, so it was she who directed the staff and made sure that daily life ran smoothly. Her daughter states that it was also really she who loved the animals, the gardens, and the country life. To help inside, she had a cook and two maids, all Irish, and outside, a man who served as chauffeur, a gardener for the vegetables, a dairyman, and a general handyman. A Japanese gardener cared for the flower gardens. Day workers were also employed when needed, for the estate produced great quantities of vegetables, milk, poultry, and eggs. Edith Stokes usually drove her husband to the railroad station in a carriage pulled by their mare, Mabel. It took only 12 minutes to get there, but 40 minutes to return home, as the horse then had to be walked to cool down. The Stokeses, as did other commuters, used the paddock near the station where they let their horses stay until they became accustomed to the noise of the trains. Even so, pandemonium often broke loose as horses reared and tried to run away with their carriages when the 549 steamed in from New York. In 1925, Phelps Stokes began to sell plots of his land according to a plan he had developed with Olmsted with a highly restricted residential estate. By 1937, when Edith Stokes died, 30 had been sold with 12 remaining. They were from 2 to 7 acres in size and had town water as well as underground electric and telephone service. A little over 20 acres were kept with High Low House. Phelps Stokes died in 1944 at the age of 77. His estate was bought purely for the property and the view. The house, half of which was three and a half centuries old, was thereupon torn down to make way for a modern structure. You're in for a pleasant surprise at Coffee for Good. 
Located in the 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue, behind the Second Congregational Church, Coffee for Good has quickly emerged as one of Greenwich, Connecticut's top coffee houses. Its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to quality and inclusion. Coffee for Good shines as a unique nonprofit partnership between the Second Congregational Church and Abelis. It employs and trains people with disabilities through a self-sustaining platform so they can thrive in the community. The 1856 Solomon Mead House provides a 19th century style hip and unpretentious historical setting that evokes a setting filled with diverse people who are all inspired. Delightful staff, super friendly baristas, great coffee, pastries and more, Coffee for Good provides free Wi-Fi free parking, indoor and outdoor seating, with a relaxed local vibe that has become a popular study spot and destination for informal business meetings and gatherings. My friends, take it from me. The word about this gem has gotten around. Located in the historic 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue, in Greenwich, behind the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill Historic District and listed on the National Register of Historic Places, Coffee for Good is open daily, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more at coffeeforgood.org. Your next hire is just a coffee away. Hire a good employee. My friends, Coffee for Good in the historic Solomon Mead House at 48 Maple Avenue behind the Second Congregational Church is an on-the-job training platform with Abelis for people with disabilities. Its graduates have the technical and professional skills to be employed in jobs in the hospitality, service, and retail industries. How does Coffee for Good benefit your business? Well, improve employee retention, increase customer loyalty, assistance with the job transition, on-site job coaches, federal tax credits, skills tailored to your business, and a diverse workforce. I encourage you to speak with Helen Lebrano and Alan Gunsberg, the employer's advisory team at Employer at coffeeforgood.org. Again, that Helen Lebrano or Alan Gunsberg, the employer's advisory team, at employer at coffeeforgood.org. My friends, learn more at coffeeforgood.org forward slash employers. Visit Coffee for Good and see them in action. You are listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you.
Patty Silkman is a recently retired Greenwich Public School teacher who taught math and science at Central Middle School for 38 years. Currently, Patty is a storyteller at Greenwich's Byram Schubert Library. The Greenwich Historical Society invites you to enjoy summer story time for preschool children. Join us for stories and music in the gallery and garden. Wednesdays 11 to 11.30 a.m., July 13 through September 28th. Reservations requested but not required. Learn more at GreenwichHistory.org or call 203-869-6899. Prolific and gifted, Judge Frederick Augustus Hubbard was a Greenwich lawyer, writer, and gifted storyteller. His remarkable life spanned the end of the 19th century and the first third of the 20th century here in Greenwich, Connecticut. Writing under the pseudonym Ezekiel Lemondale, he wrote about the what was for him the present history of the town uh, and what he labeled Cracker Barrel Stuff. The Judge's Corner, his column, was published for years in the Greenwich News. We're very indebted to, Gren- uh, to Frank Nicholson. He collected Judge Hubbard's Greenwich News articles and published them uh, in compendium form as Greenwich History, The Judge's Corner, 150 Vintage Newspaper Columns by Frederick A. Hubbard, selected, edited, and indexed by Frank Nicholson. Uh, Today's column is uh, number 138. It was published uh, on May 19, 1932, titled The Proprietors of the New Burial Ground in Greenwich Hold Their 99th Annual Meeting, The History of the Cemetery Adjoining the Second Congregational Church. And it goes as follows. Recently, the proprietors of the new burial ground in Greenwich, quote-unquote, held its annual meeting. It sounds new, but it is scarcely that, as this was the 99th annual meeting, and yet perhaps after a few more centuries have been checked off, those then in being may look back upon it as now the days of its infancy. It lies just west of the Second Congregational Church, and by many is considered as the cemetery of that church. But it is as separate from the church as is Putnam Cemetery. Created by an act of the General Assembly in 1833, it sold lots without regard to ecclesiastical denomination. Unlike many pieces of Greenwich real estate, it can boast of no long string of individual owners. In 1697, it was included in the patent of the Colonial General Court, and the leading patentee was Angel Houston. His name stands at the head of the list. He was a resident of Greenwich, Old Town. The nickname of Horseneck did not appear till after the Ecclesiastical Division of 1705. But it is a significant fact that when he acquired what is now the cemetery and other land, he had picked one of the choicest lots on the Westchester Path. Quote unquote. He knew where the meeting house was to be located, and possibly that fact had an influence on his selection. To go to meeting required no equestrian transportation. Here, town meetings and religious services would be held, and a saddle for himself and a pillion for his wife were not necessary. In those days, it would be termed a convenient location, and here Angel Houston located his farmhouse and building with many acres extending north. Angel Houston was a leading man in the new settlement. 
His name appears frequently in the public records. He was one of the first 52 taxpayers. He bought and sold land. Town meetings appointed him to positions of trust. He and two others in 1715 laid out the site for the grist mill and the road along the north side of Horseneck Brook, just south of the Green Court Inn. But our interest in his homestead on the hill, it is easy to imagine how it looked with its lean-to in the rear, the graceful front porch, and the stone horse block from which he mounted his horse. The well sweep and the oaken bucket must have been near the back door located at what is now the center of the cemetery. A feature of the old place was the stone wall in front, laid up dry, and the wall is still standing. The records of the cemetery show that the parcel was enclosed on all sides by stone walls. It was voted to remove the one on the east side, quote, next to the meeting house yard, unquote, and to rebuild the ones on the north and west sides, according to Miss Cornelia Graham's garden. But no mention was made of the stone wall in front except to the east and west stone gate posts, from which certain measurements were made, and it was voted to procure an iron gate with, quote, unquote, oval top, which gate is still in use. This gate has been examined by William Gasparini of the Post Road Ironworks on the top of Tollgate Hill. And in fact, the ironworker's shop stands on the identical spot occupied by the toll house, which was removed in 1899. Mr. Gasparini said that the gate of wrought iron was probably made by the village smithy, and he adds, quote, Keep it painted, and it is good for more centuries to come, unquote. It is safe, therefore, to say that the front fence is more than 200 years old. Pioneers built stone fences. Angel Houston was not a young man when he moved to Horseneck, but he was not beyond the fence-building age. And besides, he had husky sons, and in those days, everybody, including father, worked. The old record book of this corporation is a curiosity. Madeline Day of, eight, of 876 Pearl Street sold the book. He also carried a stock of quills, and it is probable that all of the first few pages of the record book were written with a quill pen, for steel pens were not in common use until the middle of the 19th century. The chirography is clear and distinct, the words being well apart and the letters carefully formed. The act of incorporation occupies two and one-half pages and has a copy of the seal of the state and the signature of, Timoth of Thomas Day, its secretary. But the paper is coated and unglazed, and the ready absorption of the ink accounts for the unfaded pages. All authorities agree that at the close of the Revolutionary War, Angel Houston's homestead occupied what is now the cemetery plot. Between that time and 1833, over 50 years, a later built house may have stood on the same site, but that is not probable. The purchase price of $500 paid to Solomon Mead shows that no buildings were then on the premises. It's easy to see why the Greenwich Historical Society's Tavern Garden Markets have been wowing shoppers this summer. 
In a class by itself, the Tavern Garden Markets feature a specially curated and alternating selection of locally grown and sourced products. Support local growers, producers, and artisans when you fill your basket and your home with the bounties of native and unique handcrafted goods. Enjoy farm-to-table organic produce, fresh eggs, plants, and flowers. Savor the flavors of nutritious prepared foods, fresh-baked breads, fruit pies, and donuts. Find the perfect gift among an array of vintage silver, jewelry, stationery, ceramics, and accessories. Mark your calendars for Wednesday, August 10th and August 24th. 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. But you know what? Here's a secret. Shh! Early birds are welcomed at 9.30. Tavern Garden Markets are held in the lobby and Tavern Gardens at the Greenwich Historical Society's Bush Holly House Campus at 47 Strickland Road. Free parking. Tavern Garden Markets are sponsored by Yashmin Lloyds and Compass. Thank you. I'm sure you'll agree that music on the lawn on Thursdays at the Bush Holly House in Koskob is a hit. Presented by the First Bank of Greenwich and supported by Waterstone on High Ridge, music on the Great Lawn has been entertaining audiences weekly in the heart of Greenwich Historical Society's campus at 47 Strickland Road. Summer is sizzling. Pack your picnic and enjoy an evening of live music in Bush Holly's exquisite historic gardens. Mark your calendars for Thursday, August 11th, when the Bob Button Band is set to perform. On Thursday, August 25th, get ready for Gunsmoke. Space is limited. Advanced registration is recommended. Members, $10. Non-members, $20. Become a Greenwich Historical Society member and receive special rates. My friends, don't put this off any further. The Great Lawn at Bush Holly House opens 5.30 p.m., concert 6.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. Parking is free. Learn more at GreenwichHistory.org or call 203-869-6899. My friends, on last week's show, that would be the one on July 22nd, I featured a segment about a class of people that usually are overlooked uh, here in Greenwich, uh, but uh, certainly not anymore. <laughs> well, maybe, I don't know. Um, that would be the uh, the inventors, inventors who uh, lived here in uh, Greenwich. Erwin Edwards uh, wrote a, a piece about this in his uh, in his column, Greenwich Life as it is and was, uh, that was published in the um, in the early 20th century. I have a follow-up to this, uh, and um, it was pointed out to me by a friend of mine, and I thought that I would uh, share that with you um, uh, today. This is another piece also by Erwin uh, Edwards. This appeared in the Greenwich News and Graphic um, on Friday, July 2nd, 1920. And the focus of this particular article is on Simon Ingersoll, um, who was an inventor of the steam rock drill and also of something else that you've heard of called the horseless carriage. So I'd like to uh, to share this with you again. This is from Erwin Edwards in his column, Greenwich Life as it is and was, that was featured in the Greenwich News and Graphic on Friday, July 2nd, 1920. And it goes as follows. 
If Simon Ingersoll, the inventor of the steam rock drill, quote-unquote, could come back to Greenwich, his old home, he would find that his prediction of 60 years ago or more had come true. He would see the, quote, horseless carriage, unquote, everywhere. He would notice that the horse had practically disappeared from our streets and that a, quote, horseless carriage, unquote, had taken his place. And this change had come about just as he said it would. Simon Ingersoll, one of the great of many inventors of the world, lived in Stanwich near Timmins Hill, otherwise known in those days as, quote, the farms, unquote. His home was in a stone house, said to have been the first all-stone house built in Greenwich. It is still standing, or was two or three years ago. It is a large, simple, unpretentious stone building and makes no claim to architectural beauty. It is two stories and a half high and stands close to the roadway. It must have cost some money to build it, as things were in those days. It was in this old stone dwelling, which must have been erected a hundred years or more ago, that this great inventor lived during his early life. It was here that he conceived, planned out, and made that worldwide known, quote, steam rock drill, quote, or unquote, which had so much to do with the making it possible to build so many railroads in this country and to do other things of that nature. It took the place largely of hand tools and slow processes, drilling into rocks, tunneling into mountains, burrowing into the earth in mining operations, a machine which, uh, which made millions for others but little for the inventor. Ingersoll died comparatively a poor man, like many another of his kind, who had accomplished great things for the mechanical world. But it's about the first, quote, horseless carriage, unquote, that it was the intention of this article to tell. How it was received by the people and what became of it. How the inventor, disappointed, chagrined, angered at its reception, drove it into a junk heap and left it there for good, making his prediction already spoken of. It was more than half a century ago that Ingersoll made his historic ride in his horseless carriage from Stanwich to Stamford, a distance being about seven or eight miles. And that was his first and last trip in that machine. But that wasn't because he hadn't demonstrated that a horseless carriage could be made a practical vehicle. No, that was not the reason why the inventor discarded it. Just one thing made him despair of it, and that was that public opinion was opposed to it. That settled it for him. However, he knew he well knew with his a foreseeing eye, that he and his machine were a long way ahead of their times. In the distance, he saw the coming of the horseless carriage, but too far away for anyone else in those days to view it, and so too distant to be any good to him. He made that trip from Stanwich to Stamford in just about half the time a horse could cover that distance in, and that pleased him greatly. It was a crude machine, of course. All great inventions of that kind have been so from the start. He saw its defects and where it could be improved upon and noted carefully its working. Taking it all in, uh, taking it all in all, it was a success insofar as it proved that a machine could be made that would run along the roadway and not on rails by its own power. 
It didn't take him a great while to work out a problem of how to make the horseless, horseless carriage after studying a locomotive for a, lo for a short time. And he found that after a few inspections, an engine on the New York and New Haven Road, the steam engine gave him his cue and he planned out his machine from it, adapting the same principle to the horseless carriage with some changes, of course, in the mechanism. As described by us, uh, to us by one who saw the invention, it was a wagon so arranged that a steam boiler could be placed on it upright and the propelling machinery so fixed that the power was applied to the rear wheels. The wagon was arranged to hold four people, two in the rear, the fireman and the engineer, and a seat in front for the passengers. The trial trip was made in good time, in better time than was expected by the inventor. The machine worked pretty well, all in all, Ingersoll told his friends. The control was good. The only trouble seemed to be in getting the brakes to work, as they should in going downhill. But that was a fault that could easily be remedied. The motive power was steam generated by coal, and the speed of the carriage was, of course, regulated by the pressure of the steam. When the horseless carriage arrived in Stamford, it naturally created great astonishment, not unmixed with excitement. Quote, what is it? Where was it going? What was it to be used for? Quote, unquote, and other questions of the like nature came from the curious crowd. People rushed out of their stores to see it go by, and to the front doors and windows of residences. It is quite doubtful if ever before there was so much excitement in Stamford over the passing by of a vehicle. Horses became frightened, and some people were scared for fear the curious thing would blow up. It made such a noise puffing, and by the hissing of the escaping steam, that some folks actually thought that it was an infernal machine a machine come to make trouble, for it must be remembered that in those days a steam engine even was a curiosity. Ingersoll put his horseless carriage under a shed and waited a day or two before appearing with it on the streets again. The next time he ventured out in it, it excited more curiosity than ever. But wonder and astonishment was followed by laughter and scorn, as its purpose became known when called a horseless carriage. Then it was alluded to as a freak thing, and Ingersoll was called a crank, a name applied to great inventors other than Ingersoll in their day. But this feeling changed to fear. In Stamford Village, folks became so wrought up over it that the selectmen of the town said to Ingersoll, quote, You've got in here with this con contrivance of yours, but you must keep the freak thing, for that is what it is, off the streets. It is very dangerous. It frightens horses. It makes a terrible noise. It is liable to run over people, and it's liable to burst. We forbid you to use it on our streets, unquote. Ingersoll was disappointed and greatly chagrined by the way he and his horseless carriage were treated by the people of Stamford. Disgusted and angry, he made reply to the town officials who had ordered it off the streets, somewhat as follows, quote, you will live to see the day, perhaps not all of you, but some of you, anyway, when the horseless carriage will be more common on your streets than the horse and carriages now. 
It may be propelled by some power other than steam, but it is coming. And mark that prediction. You men only judge the future by what you see today. Things will not remain at a standstill. Unquote. The experience that the inventor of the first horseless carriage met with in Stamford so disheartened him that he ran his machine into a junk heap in that village. It was but a village in those days, and there it is today, or portions of it, or it was two or three years ago. Ingersoll also invented a steam plow, but never tried to push it into public notice because of his experience with his horseless carriage. But his prediction has come true. Discover Greenwich, creating a sense of place, is a fantastic new program by the Greenwich Historical Society, celebrating its 90th anniversary. Well, how about that? Now, you're invited to savor Greenwich's summer breezes with August's Picnic in the Park series. Join us in a celebration of summer as we feature Greenwich's beautiful and historic parks. Mark your calendars and these locations. Are you ready? Sunday, August 14, Bruce Park. Sunday, August 21st, Montgomery Pinedom. And Sunday, August 28th, Binney Park. Get comfortable, meet old friends and new ones as we connect and strengthen our ties to each other and a special place we call home in Greenwich's picturesque parks. Now, for details and to order your picnic, visit greenwichhistory.org forward slash discover dash Greenwich. Well, it's not every day that you see someone who has written about his family history and that tied to the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, uh, making a major publication like the New York Post. So uh, this caught my attention, and actually um, he uh, contacted me through uh, Facebook Messenger, and of course I'm talking about Dennis Richmond Jr. Um, on July 16th of this year, 2022, um, the New York Post published a letter that Dennis wrote um, the title of which being My Family History Shows I've Been Lied To About Slavery in America. Uh, Dennis Richmond Jr. is of African-American descent, and um, he has been researching his ancestry, and I'd like to just um, uh, share this with you. Um, in March 2008, I was 13 when my dad and I watched the TV miniseries Roots, which follows the fictional story of a man born in 18th century Gambia who is sold as a slave in America and the generations who come after him. It inspired me to ask questions about my own family's past. Suddenly I started searching online, interviewing older relatives and exploring libraries and archives. Surprisingly, more than half of Americans can't name all four of their own grandparents, and over 20% of black Americans have never looked into their family tree. But as a result of my research, not only can I name all of mine, I can trace my family tree straight back to the 1790s. I also discovered something crucial that contrasts sharply uh, with what many African Americans are taught about our history, Students, black people, are repeatedly told that we are all descended from slavery and that we all were, and only were, slaves. Some people assume that every black American who lived in the U.S. before 1870 was a slave. That is simply not true. In 1860, three years before the Emancipation Proclamation, the United States 
federal census schedule reported 488,073 black Americans. True, many might say quasi-free, since these African Americans could not vote. But free they were, almost half a million of them, roughly 12.5% of the entire African American population at the time. Hulda Peck, my great-great-great-great-grandmother on my father's side, was born free in Greenwich, Connecticut in 1836. Her parents, George Peck, a stonemason, and Nancy Filmetta, were also free, as were Nancy's parents, York and Tamar, the latter born in 1773, three years before the U.S. Revolution. It's striking to think that my father's ancestors were free for nearly a century before the Civil War. While most of my mother's family were enslaved in South Carolina plantations at this time, learning about this other side, this free side, made me realize that slavery does not fully define my past. Hulda's children also illustrate the importance of self-reliance and entrepreneurship in my family. Her son, Edward B. Merritt, born in 1871, worked in real estate at a time when the majority of blacks in much of the nation labored as farmers or domestics. His son, John Sherman Merritt, was a homeowner in Greenwich, Connecticut, who worked four jobs to support his young family. John's daughter, Adele Matilda Merritt, enjoyed a privilege privileged Greenwich childhood, complete with charm school, a perchant for photography, and later international travel. And Adele's daughter, my grandmother, Joyce Marie Watkins, was a small business owner who settled in Yonkers, New York. Black children grew up believing that their only history is a history of slavery. Nicole Hannah-Jones and the New York Times 1619 Project argued that America's entire history is founded on slavery. The truth is more complicated, interesting, and nuanced than that. Researching my family's past has given me a sense of belonging to this nation. I am part of the large story of striving and success that has built the American dream. All this has empowered me to walk with my head held high, and I hope it inspires others to look beyond the stock narratives of the present and find their own lessons from the past. For me, Hulda's 100-year-old headstone in Rybrook, New York, will forever serve as a reminder of her unique status in history, a history I am proud to call my own. And Dennis Richmond Jr. is a journalist. He is the author of He Spoke at My School, an Educational Journey. He is the founder of the New York and New Jersey HBCU Initiative, and you can follow him on social media at New York Stacks, and that's spelled S-T-A-K-Z. All right. Well, I have to tell you that I am on Greenwich Avenue very often. I don't park there because I don't own a car. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, when, when you move to Hawaii, as I did back in, um, in 1995, one of the things you learn is that uh, a car is not necessarily um, absolutely necessary. Uh, the the uh, city of Honolulu actually has a really great transportation system, which um, many of us use quite often. Uh, but um, uh, so I've been spared the agony of trying to find a parking space uh, that is convenient on Greenwich Avenue. Um, but when I am there, I certainly see so many people 
uh, going through the process of uh, trying to find something convenient for their purposes or what have you. Um, and if you think that this is anything new in our town's history, think again. I have a letter that was written and published uh, in the Greenwich News and Graphic um, that is dated Friday, July 14, 1922. <laughs> so literally 100 years ago. And I thought I'd share this with you. Um, it's written by someone who was rather famous on uh, this uh, particular uh, Greenwich History Show, and um, I'll tell you who it is at the end. But um, let's uh, let's get on with it. I'm just going to read this to you, and um, and you'll see just how familiar this is, and how far this problem has gone back in our history. The headline is the parking problem: argument favoring use of town's property for that purpose. Editor News and Graphic. The rapidly increasing traffic on Greenwich Avenue has caused considerable discussion as to a method of relief. On the east side, opposite the theater, if cars were backed against the curb, less room would be sacrificed than at present. But further north, the street is not so wide, and the backing-in method cannot be adopted. This fact has raised a cry for the widening of the street at the expense of the sidewalk. To narrow up the sidewalk would cause untold damage to property values. Avenue lots are still in demand, but let it be given out that the sidewalks are to be made narrow, and the attention of other buyers will be called in another direction. Already it has been claimed that Mason Street is the coming business street. An out-of-town expert went over the ground only last week, and it was his opinion that in 25 years Mason Street will hold the honors as a business street. In support of his contention, he pointed out that the banks and the trolley road were only a block away. The avenue is broken with church, library, and school properties. He pictured Mason Street with a traveled with a traveled way as wide as the avenue and with sidewalks of a uniform width of 30 feet the entire length. He recognized, as did John H. Ray and William J. Smith, more than 30 years ago, the importance of wide sidewalks. Mr. Ray, one of the pioneers on the avenue, realized their importance more than 40 years ago. And he has before him a condition that warranted his judgment. What is now the Pickwick Corner was the Peter Acker Corner in 1860. A narrow sidewalk ran from that corner south along the westerly side of the street to the Held Market near the old Trust Company building. It was 10 feet from the gutter, there being no curb, to the property line. But because of the market, it was much in use, pedestrians crossing at the head of the avenue. On the other side of the street property of Augustus Lyon, subsequently called the Lennox House, extended down to where the old town building stands. With the exception of the small frame building, now occupied by A.M. Seridarian, 
All this property was practically farmland enclosed within a stone wall along the street. But in 1870, when Bornt S. LaForge built where the Acker, Merrill, and Condit Company is located, he had this wall removed and set his building back some ten feet. He recognized the value of a wide sidewalk and was willing to contribute some of his own land for that purpose. The following year, 1871, the Peter Acker property was cut into lots for stores, and they were erected on the property line, leaving a sidewalk only 10 feet in width. The foresight of Mr. LaForge, with the cooperation of John Dayton and later John H. Ray, turned the tide of travel from the narrow walk on the west side to the east side, where it still remains in the proportion of 100 persons, day or night, on the east side to 25 on the west side. There is no chance to dispute this fact. Personal observation will prove it. When Mr. Smith became interested in the S. Merwin Mead land, his first, thought, his first thought was for a wide sidewalk, and he cooperated with the writer in securing it. Deeds of all of the lots south of Elm Street to Bruce Place provide that buildings shall be set back 10 feet from the property line, although there was contemplated long before borough, the borough had the actions to establish building lines. An attempt to destroy a wide sidewalk for the benefit of parking automobiles seems unwise and is likely, under the circumstances, to lead to serious, let's see, I can't see what that word is, uh, for regular traffic, the street is wide enough, and indeed it is wider than Broadway from Wall Street down to number 36. But cars should not park on it any more than on Broadway. Fifth Avenue a few years ago was widened at the expense of many millions. Sod is now the most beautiful business street in the world. But the widening was wholly on the sidewalks, the curb lines remaining the same. That there must be a chance to park automobiles goes without saying, and the town does not utilize the property it owns and is unencumbered by back of the old town building is a mystery. Perhaps the present generation has no knowledge of it and the older ones have forgotten, but on two occasions when the teams of farmers were more in evidence than they are in these days, an annual and a special meeting voted not to sell the property because of the long sheds that sheltered the horses of the farmers while they traded in the village. The sheds have disappeared, but by properly grading the ground, at least 50 automobiles could find convenient parking spaces where they once stood. Naturally, the question arises, quote, what such activity is in business property, unquote. The answer is that business property is simply catching up with the valuation of residence property. The latter has, for years, in rentals and purchase price, ruled higher than in most of the suburban towns, while the business property has been much lower. Main Street lots in Port Chester and White Plains were selling at from $1,000 to $2,000 a front foot, when Greenwich Avenue lots were held at $300 per foot. 
With the increase in population and in the variety of shops, business property has begun to advance. But it is only a beginning, and investors and speculators are looking for greater advances in prices and a larger development in commercial property. As a resident's town, Greenwich is recognized the world over as the most desirable suburban town. From any part of it, New York is more accessible than many parts of Brooklyn, and Greenwich is yet undeveloped. A ride over a permanent highway to Round Hill or Stanwich reveals thousands of acres once teeming with farm crops but now run to bushes and sprout land. It is not without natural beauty, and it affords a feeding ground for deer and a shelter for quail, pheasants, partridges, and cottontails. They all add to the animated beauty of the town, but they are not taxpayers. Hmm. The men who, ten years ago, bought 150 acres or more and have watched the trees grow and the taxes increase are quite likely to conclude that 10 acres are enough and it will be natural for them to offer to their friends portions of their holdings, upon which hundreds of fine houses will be built. A development nearby will be on several hundred acres between this village and Cascob and larger tracts on the Glenville Road. That all this, and perhaps more, is anticipated by investors and speculators is well known to real estate brokers who have no suggestions to make as to when such anticipations will be realized. Now, my friends, who do you think was the author of this letter? His name? <laughs> Ready? One that we know very, very well here. His name was Frederick A. Hubbard. Of course, we know him very, very well as um, Judge Frederick Hubbard and the author of a column that uh, that he penned that we feature here on the Greenwich of Town for All Season Show podcast, The Judge's Corner. Well, it's time for Crimes and Misdemeanors. This is the segment of the show in which we remind ourselves that not everything was law-abiding, tranquil, and serene in Greenwich, although we'd like to think otherwise. We like to also remind ourselves that <laughs> back then and even now, it was a very imperfect world. Um, I don't think I've reported on, on this. This is from December 5th, uh, 1913, uh, from the Greenwich Time, and it is titled, William N. Knapp Struck by Auto on the Post Road. William Knapp, who was returning to his Greenwich home from a visit to James Pugmire of Byram Bridge Sunday night, was hit by an auto approaching behind him, resulting in fractures of one leg, two ribs, and severe scalp wounds. The auto kept on without stopping, and he lay in the road sometime until found by Walter Moe and Henry Zay. By the way, that name is spelled Z-E-H of Porchester, who were returning from Stamford in a rig. Knapp asked for help, but fearing they might be harmed, they drove to Porchester. Then William Summerfield and Zay returned and found Knapp unconscious. They took him to his home, and medical examiner Dr. Clark was notified, and he was removed to the general hospital and cared for. The authorities are trying to locate the car and driver, as yet without result. Although his injury is severe, Knapp is expected to recover. And again, this happened uh, and was published in December 1913. It was published in the Greenwich Time. Well, our weekly excursion into Greenwich, Connecticut's history is coming to a close. 
So with that said, I'd like to thank you very much for tuning in to the 29th of July, 2022 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. Of course, it's hosted by me. I'm Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. Founded on July 18, 1640, Greenwich, Connecticut is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. You and your Greenwich stories are a part of our history, and we are very, very glad to have you. And we're also glad to have you as listeners to this weekly podcast. Thank you so much for doing that. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander. He's the landscape architect and principal behind Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Mr. Kevin M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Now, you can always contact me, and in fact, I encourage you to do so by emailing me at greenwichatownforallseasons at gmail.com. You can learn more about the show and you can listen to past shows by going to greenwichatownforallseasons.blogspot.com. There is no paywall, by the way, so you can listen to uh, former or old episodes of this show as many times as you want, and you can share them with your friends and loved ones. But the show and I are on Facebook and Twitter, so please look us up. Also, um, Peter Alexander's business uh, landscape uh, or site design associates and the Long Island Sound Institute are on Facebook. You can go like those and if you would, please. Also, um, speaking of Facebook, look for and join any of a number of Greenwich, Connecticut groups. These include, you know you're from Greenwich if images of Greenwich, Connecticut, Greenwich Connections, Byram Neighborhood Association, Friends of Byram Park, um, and for our or from our neighbors over in uh, Portchester, New York, the Portchester, New York Historical Archive. It's very interesting. Please check that one out, and there's others as well. Now, our next show is scheduled for Friday, the 5th of August, 2022. Um, enjoy the weekend and the coming week ahead. Bye-bye now.